Welcome to New Jersey Tech Meetup, the podcast. Each show, we bring you insights from amazing guest speakers from the meetup. Tune in to hear from entrepreneurs and innovators like Gary Vanerchuk, James Altucher, Brad Feld, and your host, Aaron Price. We hope you enjoy today's show. I hear you're very skilled at pitch presentation, <laughs> since you haven't launched a product yet, but you have quite a serious bank account. So I think it would be great if you could pitch this audience tonight on Jet in 60 seconds. <laughs> Uh, so they know what this is about. On the spot, on the spot, a 60 second pitch. So at Jet.com, we're reinventing the concept of a wholesale club in an online world. So if you think about what Costco sort of did to Walmart, they innovated around price, right? And they pulled costs out of the system, were able to bring lower prices to the market than Walmart was, and they were the clear price leader, right? 21 years later, they did that by having you shop in a warehouse, big, bulky things of mayonnaise, right? And limited skew count, long lines, can't pay with a Visa and MasterCard to check out, no bags. They did all these things to pull costs out of the system and then they said, let's double down on price. We will charge a membership to consumers and make no profit on anything we sell. And the combination of pulling costs out and the membership gave them a really powerful price advantage. And even though it was 21 years post Walmart, they were able to break into the market and create and generate over $100 billion in revenue they're a 60 plus $70 billion market cap business. It's coincidentally 21 years post Amazon. And here we are, um, the market is, is sort of chasing right now service everywhere you look. It's about faster ship times, Prime, eBay Now, Google Express, Instacart. All these guys are chasing faster delivery because those are the early adopters of the internet. But we see a really big opportunity to innovate around price and to do to the market and to Amazon what Costco did to Walmart in the offline world. And that is we want to have an online um, marketplace, charge consumers a $50 annual membership fee, make no profit on anything we sell, and then on top of that, we're going to pull costs out of the system the same way, um, I'm sorry, we're gonna pull costs out of the system the same way Costco did, but we're gonna do it in an online way. And that is by utilizing technology, we're going to empower customers to pull costs out uh, by making all the costs of the underlying transaction transparent to the consumer as they shop. And what I mean by that is what people don't realize is that the biggest cost of e-commerce, getting product to folks, is really shipping and fulfillment. Those are the big expenses. They're about 25% of a company's revenue. And there's wild fluctuations in the costs of shipping and fulfillment depending on a number of factors or how far you're shipping it, whether you can ship everything in one box or not, and things like that. Current world, everything's fixed. When you shop on Amazon and you buy from multiple, uh, buy multiple products, you're picking the retail you want to buy from each of the products, and the price is the price, regardless of what you, what's in your cart or where you live. That doesn't really make any sense, and there's ways to pull a lot of costs out of the system by doing it more efficiently. And so what we do, we've kind of built the system look more like a real-time trading system than an e-commerce site. And what happens is that uh, as you start adding stuff to your shopping cart, let's say you buy a baseball bat and a ball, and it's in your shopping cart, and now you search for a glove. They might get a search results with like, all right, 50 different gloves. Some of those gloves can be shipped together with the bat and ball that's in your basket in the same box, and it's located in close proximity to you. Other gloves maybe can't ship together 
with the bat and ball. There's no pools of inventory in the United States that have that bat, that ball, and the glove you're looking at. So it's going to have to split ship, and it's a whole separate ship charge. It's very expensive. And so we basically show the cost savings to be had from buying smart through something called the smart cart bonus. So every product starts with great low prices because we don't make any profit. So prices started about, let's say, 7 to 8% below Amazon on nearly everything they sell. We're launching with about 10 million products. So that's kind of the starting price. And then these smart cart bonuses start to pop up to kind of steer customers toward these more economically efficient orders. And so you're looking and you're searching for gloves and you see some gloves three, four dollars cheaper than they were when you had nothing in your cart. Doesn't mean you're necessarily gonna buy that. You still might want a different glove, but at least we're making it transparent to you so you as a customer could know that that glove is three or four dollars cheaper right now because it can ship basically for free because it can be commingled with what's in your shopping cart. And every time you add stuff to your shopping cart, we're dynamically adjusting the prices of stuff you search for to reflect the true economic costs. And that's sort of how we pull supply chain out. We also make transparent payment fees. So when you go pay with American Express, you could do that, but we tell you, hey, if you pay with Visa or you pay with debit or you pay with ACH, here's all the true savings that uh, a retailer uh, would, would get, and we pass them back to the customer. We allow the customer to buy non-returnable, and we tell you how much that can save you. You can slow ship speed down if you don't need something right away to save money. Basically, all the costs that go into an e-commerce transaction are made transparent, and we empower consumers to pull costs out of the system. Overall, uh, prices will average about 12, 12.5% roughly, cheaper than the lowest price on the internet, you know, be it Amazon or Walmart. Um, on, on nearly anything online. And in addition to the 10 million products, we also have something called Jet Anywhere, which allows you to save on um, websites that don't sell on Marketplace, like J. Crew and Gucci and Pottery Barn. And so we have Jet Anywhere, you go on Jet, you remember, click on Pottery Barn link, go to Pottery Barn, shop, and then we'll put, let's say, I think the Pottery Barn is 15% of whatever you buy on Pottery Barn, will go into your account on Jet as cash to be used on whatever you want. Um, and so it really is, uh, the value proposition to the consumer is pay 50 bucks a year and literally save on any single product you want to buy online. Um, so you may have remembered I said 60, 60, 60 seconds. 60 seconds? <laughs> <laughs> I would have kicked you off the stage, the startup stage, a long time ago, but you have a pretty good track record, so I let you go. Um, a lot of people like to pin you up against Amazon. Right, you worked at Amazon. When you and I first spoke, you said that first-time founders often dream of building nine-figure companies, then look for a tenth figure trying to build a billion-dollar business, and that it was then your goal inside Amazon. I don't know if you remember saying this, but to build a ten billion-dollar uh, unit or business inside Amazon. So, have you had you had you shared this concept with them? And what happened? You know, why did you ultimately decide that that was the wrong fit for you? To continue to stay in Amazon and and build the Jet concept within Amazon. Sure. Yeah, so or the Quincy, you know, the, the Quincy, Quincy brands. Itself, yeah, um, I think. I mean, this is one of those things that you know all the entrepreneurs here could 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 appreciate. Is when you sort of go down a path and you have a certain vision for what you want to be, uh, it's very hard to pivot, especially when it requires a lot of capital. Trying to uh, get investors to finance a pivot is much harder than getting to finance something from scratch. I think that's what it was, and so with Quincy. Our model was really focused around offering, you know, really fast delivery times, great customer service, 365-day returns, all this stuff, and it was sort of high touch, and our prices 
were higher than the market. So you sort of paid a premium for it. Um, the, the, the really big opportunity was to basically reduce price so that we were competitive on price and had great service. That required hundreds of millions of dollars in investment. Also, e-commerce is a scale game. And so you really don't get to leverage your fixed expenses in e-commerce until you're about $5 billion in revenue. So, yeah, I mean, basically to get to where we were at a $5 billion, lower prices would require hundreds of millions of dollars of capital. And it was, I think, too big of an investment for a public company to make, you know. So uh, do, I mean, the, the, the beginning of that question was, do you, you know, it makes a great headline to compare you going after the, yeah. the Amazon behemoth. Do you see yourself going after Amazon? No, I mean, you know, they're the leading e-commerce company in the space, so obviously we're going to be competing with them in, in many respects, just being in the space, but it's not a head-to-head -head competition. We're not going after specifically Prime, which is really their, their bread and butter. Um, the Do you believe that the people will spend that same annual membership fee, like looking at it as, well, I could spend it with Prime or I could spend it with Jet? I think some people might, but I mean, you could even buy both memberships. I mean, plenty of people have a Costco membership and a Prime membership. So the idea is, you know, if you want to buy something and, you know, get really fast delivery times and you don't really, you're not as price sensitive, you pay the hundred bucks and you get Prime, maybe you want the video, whatever. Um, Jet, the model's pretty simple. Spend $50 a year and save 150 or $200. So it depends. If you want to save money, then you buy the Jet membership. If you want, you know, um, to pay 100 bucks for improved service, you do, and so it's not really competitive from that respect, you know. Do, do you see that, um, is this something that you, have you heard via Jeff Bezos or from him directly that they are not so thrilled with you? No, I, I, haven't, heard, I haven't heard anything recently, no. Do, do you, so what do you think, <laughs> sure you haven't. What do you think, um, you know, Sam Walton, Saul Price of Costco, what do you think made those guys stand out? Do you see yourself as wanting to emerge into that category? Do you see yourself more in the Costco model? Or do you see this as a, the modern version of an Amazon meets a membership marketplace? I think it's really the latter. Yeah, so I mean, um, the, the hallmark of a, of a price club is really amazing prices, but limited assortment, you know, the, the, the big five pound jug of mayonnaise. It's totally different online. You're basically, you have the, the, the prices of a Costco, but on an unlimited assortment. So it makes it very different than, than a traditional club. So yeah, I guess it's a hybrid between, you know, it's the assortment of Amazon with the prices of Costco. I guess that's the best way to put it. Sure, so what about, you know, Amazon's become quite diversified, a big content place, spending two and a half billion dollars on content uh, this year, I believe it is. Uh, a lot of original programming. Uh, Netflix is spending five billion dollars on original programming, which is three times as much as HBO. Do you see content in the vision of this company? I, I'm a big believer in, in staying incredibly focused. So I think, you know, in the last 20 years since e-commerce sort of came to be, there hasn't been that much innovation. If you think about the shopping experience on like an Amazon or Walmart, it hasn't changed that much in two decades. And I think um, my view is that there's still a lot of room and opportunity to innovate. Um, and there are ways to bring product to, uh, to people faster and cheaper and more efficient ways. And we're going to focus all our time and energy on doing that. So we've had a lot of, uh, of entrepreneurs speak about what makes them uniquely different. We, we hosted David Kidder, who wrote the Startup Playbook, who talks about uh, the need to be 10x better than the competition to really break out. So what do you believe makes Jet 10x better than Amazon, Costco, the, the alternatives? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just we have an amazing team and we've built 
uh, a technology based on two decades of learnings. I think you know, just having the ability to sort of clean slate and have a second mover advantage is what um, really separates us. And I, I, my question was geared more towards the consumer. What do you think consumers will find as your, your do you think price alone is, is 10x? Or is perceived to be that much better, more yeah. beneficial? I mean, I do. I think, I think if, you're not, if you're not sacrificing service, yes, the idea of being able to buy anything online at prices that are more than 10% cheaper than anywhere else is, is, is 10x. And yeah. what, what would be the delivery times on something where you're getting closer to, you know, when you're 10 or 20% discounted? Yeah, so the delivery times really, I mean, we warehouse, uh, we have three warehouses in the United States. We warehouse uh, over 30,000 consumable products, so diapers, detergent, toilet paper, food, all that stuff comes in a jet box, and you'll get, in most cases, overnight delivery as part of the base membership. So all the stuff you really care about getting fast, we'll get it to you fast. Um, the other sort of 10 million products will come from third-party merchants, merchants that you heard about, you know, Dick's and Best Buy and, and merchants like that. So uh, it obviously be the, the ship policies of, of those merchant, merchants, but because our algorithms are looking for the merchant that has the inventory in close proximity, the proxim close proximity is also closely related to ship times. And so if we can find the product you know, within you know, 100 miles of where you live, it's likely to come overnight. So I think the ship speeds will actually be not, not too bad. So you guys are sort of the anti-startup, right? You've, you're based on, on Windows, a platform, right? You raised $220 million before you have a product. So can you talk a little bit about that experience of, of you know, you, you've had several companies of, of varying sizes but with some pretty solid outcomes. How has this experience been different from those and why did this one take so much capital? Yeah, I, I guess um, it's really that the amount of capital is just proportionate to the size of the opportunity. So I think like any startup, um, you think about you know raising your seed round and that bridging you to your next round of financing. So in our case, you know that was an A round. It would bridge us to a B round. Typically, you want to give yourself you know 12 to 18 months to kind of you know get to that next proof point, much bigger step up in valuation, and then do another bigger round. And so we're like no other any other startup in that respect. We raise the amount of money that we think we need over the next 12 months to get to a really nice step up and, and do a big round. It just so happens to be a really large number because we're going after a massive market with a really broad value prop that appeals to nearly every American. And so um, we're gonna spend about $100 million of that $200 million just on marketing to build awareness and our goal is to get to over a billion dollar revenue business in 12 months. And so it's just really the scale of it. You know, it's just a different, different scale. How opportunistic of, you know, representative of the times that it's a, some people would say a pretty frothy market to raise capital. Were you just, did you see this as, you know, this is a good time to fill the coffers, let's get the, let's get some capital while we can? Is there an element I of that? I think, yeah, the first, the first 80 million um, was sort of what we originally thought we needed and wanted. And then, yes, there was an opportunity to raise this 140 million in a convertible note, so we didn't have to price the round. Um, so it, it was hard not not to take that money because we didn't have to price it and it enabled us to grow a lot faster than we had envisioned before, so yeah. So on the, on the Jet brand, you, you mentioned a moment ago that everything will show up in a Jet.com box. And if I understand the story correctly, there was a moment in time at which Amazon decided that the diapers and, and WAG and yo-yo boxes should go. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? Yeah, no, you, you said it, anybody who's ordered from, from soap.com, um, 
that used to be a four-colored sort of box, and they decided to go go to a brown box. Um, do you know? Do you happen to know offhand the cost of of the premium box? Yeah, it's probably an extra like thirty cents a package. So with the millions of packages, I mean, it adds up to a lot. I mean, probably saved you know a half a million dollars a year or something. Um, maybe more, maybe a million dollars a year for for that. Um, but I, I think any with these things that sort of uh, these brand building sort of tactics, any one thing alone, you look at it and it doesn't look like it, it really pencils. So they were proud that they got rid of the colored box and they didn't see revenue drop by enough to, to make it warrant the million dollar investment. And so there's lots of these sort of small decisions you make as a company that you look at any one on its own and it doesn't pencil out, but it's, it's sort of the faith you need to have in the collection of the hundred little touch points that basically elevate the brand above the competition and really inspire passion in the customers. And I think that's what goes missing when you focus too much on the numbers. And I think Amazon um, focuses too much on the numbers and not enough on, on inspiring passion in their customers. That would be my criticism. So you also talked about spending $100 million on user acquisition. Um, can you talk a little bit about what that looks like? What, do you have any idea of the actual acquisition cost per customer? And then can you tie that to how you pitch, how you include that cost structure in your fundraising efforts and where you see other entrepreneurs potentially go, go wrong there? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think the, the, the key um, is to really have a, a really solid um, model on the unit economics of the business. So, you know, being able to prove to investors that you're, cost to acquire a new customer is a you know, small enough fraction of the expected lifetime profit of that customer to make the return um, worth the risk that they take. And so we're in a little bit unique situation. It's hard, I think, for startups probably to raise as much money as we did um, without any proof of concept. But fortunately, I've been in this now a decade. We've tested all sorts of, of different marketing initiatives from TV and radio and print and online and have a pretty good idea of what it costs to get trial, a trial member to the site. What's the most effective channel? The most effective? It, it really depends on the type of business. So there's, there's no one that says, you know, like if you're a startup or your e-commerce site, this is where you go. Um, for Jet, TV, and, and the really mass uh, forms of advertising are going to be super efficient because we're so not targeted. So if you're not targeted at all, then the mass forms, you know, being on Yahoo and, and display and TV and radio works really well, even billboard. If you're a specialty retailer, then it's going to be search. You know, it's going to be search. Should we expect to see a Jet.com Super Bowl ad next year? Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Just announcing news here all the time. Um, lost my train of thought with that one. So. A lot, one of the most popular questions, I, I, I solicited questions from the group ahead of time to ask you, and the most popular question is what prevents Amazon or Costco or another, those would be the, the, probably the biggest, but a Walmart, to just drop their prices. And Amazon in particular is near its stock uh, all-time high price, $175 billion market cap company. Wouldn't take them, uh, you know, much, I mean, their content budget is, is, is you know, some of, is your revenue target. Yeah. This, is the, this is the one, like, great thing about being a startup is that you have this honeymoon period where you don't have any customers that you're subsidizing and so you're able to carry a like an at scale value proposition today 
at, at a cost that's not great relative to the incumbents in the market. And so something like Amazon, for example, they have you know $100 billion in GMV. Every 1% that they drop price cost them a billion dollars. And so if they wanted to sort of match debt pricing, it would cost them like $12.5 billion a year, which is some multiple of the amount of cash flow that they generate. It wouldn't really be smart if you sort of play game theory out. It doesn't, doesn't make sense to match a startup unless we were sort of a really big viable competitor. And so you have this sort of window. And I think every startup has this. And when you, when you think about your competition, and you have the ability, because you have no subsidization, to go out with the value proposition that um, is not only uh, the at-scale value proposition of, of the big competitor, but you're able to offer a value proposition that may even be not sustainable at scale just because the marketing benefit outweighs the cost because you have no customers to subsidize. So um, that's something that's... A but you, you were priced... I mean, Quincy went through a, a period where uh, Amazon did try to crush diapers in a pricing war, right? Which they ultimately did. did lead to the sale of the company, correct? They did. They, they crushed us, yeah. They so, did. And, so, and you don't think that that Bezos could make the same argument to the stockholders again? Well, the argument there is different, so it's not exactly the same. It's actually very different. So in the, it was a smart move what they did. In, in the case of diapers.com, a third of our revenue was the product diapers. And for Amazon, diapers represented 0.03% of their revenue. So it was almost flipped on its head the other way. They're saying, hey, we can drop the price of diapers 30%. We're not going to lose that much. It's going to crush them. That's the a third. We, we were doing over $100 million a year just in the product diapers. And so you can imagine like, how much hurt that could put on the business. Um, and because they had such few sales in diapers, it just wasn't that meaningful. So yeah, it actually turned out that it cost them about $100 million a year because their sales on diapers exploded. Um, and they weren't too happy about losing $100 million. So uh, yeah, I don't think they'd be too happy about losing $12 billion. How, how did you, was, you know, a lot of people read the headline of uh, a company being sold for 550 or so million dollars as a, a massive win. Did you, did you interpret it that way? Um, a massive win? I mean, I, the shareholders were really happy. Um, I think the employees did well. I did well. I mean, it was, it was a, definitely a really good exit. But was that your goal? Um, I guess not, no. No, I mean, we had ambitions to create a, a much bigger business. Um, the one thing, like I said, the, the one thing uh, that I'm really happy about was that we had a chance to sort of do it over again with a clean slate. So I think it would have been really hard thinking about, our looking at our projections for Jet now, they are in the same year forward. Like we had a goal of, of you know, a big ambitious goal for 2020. The goal for Jet in 2020 is actually bigger than the original goal we had at Quincy for 2020. So it goes to show you, like when you start clean, and you, you know, uh, have big ambitious goals early on, and you get the right investor base, then you can move a lot faster and get a lot bigger. Someone submitted a question about: Is this an idea that uh, that could have survived on a five million dollar round? Could you have started with, a, you know, minimum viable product and gone the route that many of us hear? day in and day out, or did you need a giant bank account and, and need to take a big, big swing to make to even have a chance? Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm just a, I'm a big believer in if you're going to start a startup, um, you have to uh, accurately represent the at-scale value proposition the day you launch, like the at-scale. So for some businesses, 
it doesn't cost that much to represent the at scale value prop, right? In a business like Jet, where it's about the at scale value prop is sell anything online at crazy prices, like that just requires like 200 people. It requires, you know, tens of thousands of hours of programming, you know, like to, to do everything to, to get that value prop day one, it requires a ton of money. And then to sort of, you know, prove it out over the next 12 months to carry that fixed base, make the investment in marketing, it just requires a lot of capital. It's a capital intensive business. <clears throat> so this is the, the New Jersey Tech Meetup. Uh, there's, a, there's definitely, based on the submissions here, a, a lot of interest and in, in pride and enthusiasm about your being a New Jersey-based company. So why the start in Montclair, and then why the move to Hoboken? Yeah, it's funny to think about Montclair. This is the second time did a startup in Montclair. And this time, you know, I, we sort of went through the same exercise and went up in this exact same spot. That is, what city New Jersey... Um, uh, that's, that's not sort of like Hoboken, Jersey City, but like sort of in, internal to Jersey, has uh, commercial real estate space, good restaurants, and a reasonable train commute to the city. And we it went through the whole exercise again, and only Montclair comes out. There's really no place in New Jersey that has like commercial real estate space, great restaurants at walking distance, and a train to New York City in a reasonable commute. It just doesn't exist. So, so we love Montclair for that reason. And uh, unfortunately, though, there's not enough commercial space to stay there. Um, and also, you know, a lot of people that live in New York City don't really like commuting out to Montclair. So we felt like Hoboken's the ideal place for a startup because anybody that lives in New Jersey doesn't have to go through the tunnel. People that live in New York City, it's really just like a subway ride out to Hoboken. Um, the real estate is cheaper than it is in New York City. And we have much better views here. So I... This should be the startup capital of the world, in my opinion. Honestly. Never like, thought I, that before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you find it's hard? First, do you have any idea of the percentage uh, of, your, of your employee base that's based in New Jersey? And it, have you found it to be an issue recruiting people out of New York? Uh, I think it would be an issue if, uh, I mean, obviously we're a high-profile startup, so we're able to attract talent. Um, I think if we weren't, yes, it would be hard. And also, uh, people know that we're moving to Hoboken, so we've been able to attract people from New York City. I think if we stayed in Montclair, yeah, we probably would have definitely lost some people, no doubt. So uh, let's talk a little bit more about you. You left what I assume was a well-paying finance job to become an entrepreneur. Why did you do that? Yeah, so that, that's true. I, I was in finance and banking for seven years. Um, I didn't really, you know, I went to Bucknell University. I was the first one to go to college in my family. Parents didn't really were really young when they had me. Didn't really know anything about school or work or what you needed to do. I, I sort of had no plans for my future. I sort of went to Bucknell, um, and uh, you know, I, I really was interested in business. So I took a lot of business courses, and then some companies came uh, on campus and recruited, and I interviewed for a few of them. Bankers Trust gave me a job, and I went to work there. And I was just in my mindset was just like. All right, now I'm in here. I just gotta like kill it, and you know, I'd kill it, and then they'd pay me more money, and I'd kill it and pay you more money, and then it's like that was sort of the, the 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 game for seven years. It just kept working hard, making more money, working hard, and then it sort of dawned on me. Just one day, it kind of hit me that uh, I didn't really enjoy 
you know, wake up in the morning and go to work. Like, I wasn't, like, super, like, passionate about it. And someone told me that, that you know, that's, you can be passionate about work. And I didn't, it wasn't, it was just really about making money, and, and that was what jobs were about. And, uh, and I wasn't getting any happier. I'd make more money every year. It wasn't changing my happiness at all. And uh, so I, I got together with a couple of friends from grammar school and high school, two of my best friends, and they had similar situations. One of them was a lawyer, and we kind of similar situation. We were saying, "Yeah, you know, this, this is this is we got to do something about this." And so we just just one day, all three of us just walked away from our careers and made no salary, nothing. Walked away from big paying jobs and just started would be the pit.com then, which was an online sports stock market, which is what our passion was, you know, was sports at the time. And, uh, you know, looking back, it wasn't a really big opportunity to make money as a startup. It wasn't, uh, you know, we didn't raise any venture capital, anything like that, but uh, loved waking up every morning, loved going to work, worked like crazy, learned a ton, and it was just like putting one foot in front of the other. And then, you know, a year later, we sold that to Tops learn some stuff, started the next one, and you just sort of keep building. So tell me number one mistake at, at the pit, number one mistake at Quidzy. You must have made a mistake so far with Jet. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the headlines can't so, all be true. This, uh, there's so, I mean, at Quidzy, there's so many mistakes. And looking back, I mean, we, we didn't know anything about e-commerce when we started. Well, no, nothing about let's retail. start with the pit, because I want to hear the progression. Okay. Um, learning from the pit. Um, I think I really learned, it, it, the pit was an uh, was a online, it was basically a, a marketplace. We had market makers um, uh, making a two-way market in these sports players so people could buy and sell sports players like stock. And I think the big lesson I learned there was this whole thing I was saying before about the at-scale value proposition today. We had this chicken and egg problem where it's like, how do you get people on the site if you don't have like a lot of liquidity and a lot of like athletes trading with tight bid offer spreads and, and, and we couldn't have tight bid offer spreads and um, all these products because we didn't have the customers to drive the spreads down, right? It's like sort of ch classic chicken and egg problem. And we opted for um, just kind of like the, the slow grow model where it's like, well, I could offer this now. It's not terrible and maybe I'll get some customers and over time the value proposition will improve and the spreads will get tighter and I'll be able That just doesn't work. I just found like that was a huge mistake. It doesn't work. If you want a startup to be successful, the game is manufacture the value prop at scale, whatever it is, manufacture it today. Whether it's manual, you're making shit up, you do whatever it is, manufacture it so that customers love it and you'll never have a better value prop ever in the life of the company. It's master day one. Then you gotta figure out, okay, I'm losing a shitload of money. <laughs> How much money is it gonna take till I actually get to this magical place where I'm at scale and the business model is viable. You look at the amount of money it's going to take to get there. If the amount of money it's going to take to get there is significantly less than the value you've created when you get there, you got something. And that's the way to think about it. And that's the lesson I learned. It's like you cannot look, and I get this question all the time from entrepreneurs, and they show me, hey, there's my model, here's what I'm doing, what do you think? I'm like, hey, this, is this the best that customer's ever going to get? No, of course not. I, I, I can't, I wish, I can't afford that. 
It's not about it. If you're in the startup game, you can afford it. You just need to convince investors to give you the money. That's, so that's the game. Is, 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 and, and if you master the value prop for the customer, that's going to give you the biggest chance possible of getting to scale, right? Because, like, and, and that's going to give you an advantage over any competitor, any incumbent, any big established player, because they won't be able to offer that same value prop um, that you'll be able to offer the day you launch. So that was the lesson of the pit. So what about Quidzy? Possibly in a fewer, fewer words. <laughs> the, the lesson, Whatever you want to do. <laughs> the lesson at Quidzy, um, I learned uh, so many lessons at Quidzy. Uh, uh, a lot about um, the importance of, of, of building the right culture from the beginning. Um, I think, you know, when you're a startup and you're just thinking like, hey, we're going to, you know, we, we need people, we need good people, resume comes in, you interview somebody, they have, looks like they have a good resume and you start hiring them and, and next thing you know, um, you, you, you think to yourself, wow, we really need to um, come up with a set of core values, figure out who we are and, and kind of figure out the culture and, and you start doing that and if, if you've done that too late, if you haven't thought about that up front, then you get into a situation where... You know, you have people pulling in opposite directions, and it causes um, a lot of pain in the organization. At the end of the day, like if you don't have a group of motivated, happy, empowered people, you don't have anything, right? And so, I think I think we did not a bad job, but definitely learned some lessons on starting early, getting a set of core values, knowing who you are, and making sure every person you hire fits with that first and foremost, beyond anything else relating to what they do with their resume or anything like that. That was one of the lessons. And what about with Jet? Mistakes with Jet? Um, what keeps you up at night with Jet right now? Kiss me up. I, I think it's just really, I think we've boiled it down to execution. Like the execution risk keeps me up. It's the idea of, of knowing that when we launch, there's really high expectations. Right? We're not a typical startup, so the day we launch, we're going to have you know probably upwards of a million people like checking out the site. Um, we're not going to have the opportunity to sort of um, disappoint people. So coming out of the gate, being able to get you know nines and tens from everybody that shops is the absolute requirement. We need that to sort of get to the goals that we have set, and um, it's just hard to do that. We, you know, without having, you know, a lot of startups, you have a year or two or three, you know, to kind of work the kinks out. We don't really have that much time. So, what do you see as your window? Really, just have like, I mean, we have people shopping on the site now and going through it, and lots of bugs and lots of things. You know, we're going to launch here in, in a couple months, so we don't doesn't give us that much time to kind of really iron anything out. And then, trying to get to a billion dollar revenue in twelve months, just the burden that puts on the technology in terms of being able to scale on the customer service, we're going to need to hire, you know, like 500 customer service reps over the next 12 months, things like that, like just, just the actual, like, hiring and scaling the organization, that keeps me up at night. Um, you'd mentioned before you left your job because you weren't happy. So, are you happy now? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Relax, I love being man. Seriously. I, I love it. I absolutely love it. Yeah, I mean, that's... Were you happy? When was the first time you thought... I left for the right reasons, financial or otherwise. Uh, I'm pit? starting to feel. Did you feel that way then? No, literally. In general, 
the next day, the first day, I remember this really well, the first day, like, didn't have to go to the bank, didn't have to show up at work, and like, met with two of my best friends, and we just all day long, thinking about the business model, and jotting stuff down, and brainstorming, I knew that day, that it was the right decision, I would, I would never regret it. What are, a lot of people haven't had your luck slash success. What are some of the more common mistakes you see early entrepreneurs make? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I don't want to reiterate what I said before, but I think that seems to be probably the most common mistake I see, which is um, feeling like you don't have the money to create the at scale value proposition for the consumer today. And you have this, you have this constant like chicken and egg, you know, tug of war. Um, I think that's the biggest mistake that, you know, you want the game to be about, hey, I, I have this, this really big vision and I have this amazing value prop for a consumer, which gives me the highest probability getting there, but it's gonna cost me this much money to do it. And then selling the venture community on that that amount of money makes sense given what you could create and what the risk is of it not materializing. And that's the whole game. Like being able to like position it that way is, I think a lot of entrepreneurs think that it's really about um, you're just trying to get by with, 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 the, with the minimum amount of money you can. That's not really, that's not really the game. So would you advise a first time entrepreneur today who, who, let's say he does very intense modeling and decides he needs $20 million to launch this thing appropriately. First time entrepreneur might have a huge, you know, major uphill battle, nearly impossible to do something yeah. like that. Well, that, that's different. Now, I, I wouldn't say you'd want a first time entrepreneur to try to go out and raise 20 million right out of the gate. I mean, it may require 20 million or 50 or 100 million to get there over multiple rounds. Um, and so that's a little different. Most businesses, when you start, um, it's, it's about creating the value proposition to the consumer, either service or price typically. So if it's like a B2C business, you know, the, the levers you have are really service and price, right? Like whatever you're doing, like it's mostly service and price. It's make that service and make the pricing the best it will ever be the day you launch. That doesn't cost you anything, because the day you launch, you haven't spent a dime yet, right? So I, I'd say spend the normal amount of money to, to build the product, but then once you have that amazing value prop, yes, you're going to be burning on every transaction, but that's a variable expense and it's variable with revenue, and so you don't need that much money. What you do is you raise a certain amount of money, you know how much you're gonna burn, but you'll have accelerated top line growth, and you'll have the best top line acceleration you could possibly have because the value prop is unbeatable, right? And your ticket to raise that next round is gonna be that explosive top line growth, right? And so if you can't make it work, by the way, and get this explosive top line growth and get your unit economics working, like really low cost of acquisition with the best possible value prop you'll ever be able to offer, then you don't have anything. Then just shut it down and do something else, right? A lot of people like struggle with this, where they, they feel like, well, I can't, that, that price is too good, or that service is too good, I, is it gonna, I'm gonna lose 10 bucks on everything. When we started diapers.com, you know, that's what we did. We worked backwards, because I learned that lesson at the pit. And yeah, we were losing, like, buy, buy diapers for, for a dollar and send the, sell the dollars for 90 cents, the diapers for 90 cents. We would lose 10% on every box of diapers we sold. Um, but the longer term vision was, they were a loss leader, we were gonna build a relationship and then sell everything else, and you know, that was kind of the strategy. But because we sold the, the diapers for 90 cents, 
we're able to you know, accelerate growth and get to 300 million in revenue in just diapers in four years. That was the ticket to raise the rounds, to do it, to build the business, to ultimately sell it, right? So um, I think the other, the other problem that I see entrepreneurs make is um, trying to get or talk about getting profitable. Like, that's sort of like a little bit of a trap and a trick question. Like, when an investor asks you, and experienced investors especially, angels and things, hey, you know, so when are you going to get profitable? And there's this, like, pressure to feel like you have to say, like, oh, no, soon, and in, like, six months, we're closed. Once you go down that path, you're done. Because the, it's trying to grow and scale a business and be profitable at the same time, that's a Houdini act. That doesn't, that's like in fantasy land. You're going to create, like, some, like, you know, multi-hundred million dollar, billion dollar business and, like, be profitable from the beginning. It just doesn't work like that. There's a trade-off between profitability and growth. If you're aggressively investing in new customer acquisition, there's going to be a time to pay back. Maybe it's a year, maybe two, maybe three. And the more aggressive you get with investing, the more money you're going to lose. It's just straight math, right? And so telling an investor we're going to get profitable makes really no sense because the reality of it is, and the way I think about it is, I really hope I don't get profitable anytime soon. And I really mean that with Jet. When I look at the model and the financials, if I'm forced to get profitable soon, it means that I ran into a wall where I was no longer able to invest to acquire a customer and make enough return to warrant the risk, right? And so you start off, you cost you 50 bucks to get a customer and you make 250. And then you say, oh, I'm gonna spend more. And then now it starts costing you 70 bucks to make 250. That's still a good return, I spend more, spend more. Eventually you spend and you've penetrated enough, it gets more and more expensive to get more customers as you start to grow, and then it's like $200 to make $250. Okay, now you're done. Flatten your marketing and get profitable. And if you had unit economics that were, were working up until that point, as soon as you flatten marketing, you'll get profitable. As long as you're investing, you won't be profitable. So you don't want to get profitable anytime soon. The hope is that you can continue to spend every year and keep doubling your marketing budget and keep getting new customers at 50 bucks and then making 250 for you. But if you keep doubling your marketing budget every year, you can do the math all day long, you'll never make any money. If the uh, period it takes to uh, recoup that investment is a sort of a multi-year thing. It's just, it's just, it's just, the math doesn't work. So that's a long answer. <laughs> but, but yeah. Uh, a lot of the entrepreneurs who've been on this stage have talked about uh, something that, that I framed as sort of the curse of entrepreneurship that you know, we'll set a goal, hit the goal, not celebrate the goal, move on, uh, sulk about something that happened, and then there's another high, but not really celebrate it, move on. D d do you feel that way? And have you had, you know, can you talk about some of the moments where they haven't been highs? Yeah, I mean, moments where they haven't been highs just generally mean in, in entrepreneurship. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there's a lot of people in this room who have no money, whose wives are saying, or husbands, what the hell are you doing? Uh, who are looking at their product and it's not working, who are trying to figure out you know, how, to make, you know, how to get their next milestone achieved. Mm -hmm. it's, it's been a little while since you've been in, that, in their shoes, but I'm sure there are things you can relate to in that, in that storyline. And how have you pushed through some of those things? Or has, I mean, are you the outlier that, that, that's not been your, your storyline? No, no, I, I was there. I mean, you know, like I said, um, with, with diapers.com, when we started off, um, you know, we, we weren't making a salary. We had no investor capital. We put our own money in every day. We were burning both me and, and, and Vinny, my co-founder, you know, burning money, our own personal money every day. And we're buying diapers. Think about trying to explain this to your, to your family. Like, wait a second, you're not getting a salary 
and you're telling me that you're buying the diapers at BJ's for a dollar and selling them on diapers.com for 90 cents? <laughs> that doesn't make any business sense. Why would, like, and, and you just watch your bank account every month go down, go down, go down, go down. I mean, that doesn't seem like a model for, for success. So what I would say is you have to come up with, which is what we did, but come up with you know, your principles on, and know why you're doing what you're doing and be prepared to, to go all the way. You know, I mean, if, if, if it's right, if, if you have a vision for the future and you know that the investment you're making makes economic sense, that you're creating more value than you're, than you're burning, um, then you just have to, you have to go with it and you have to like put everything, there's, there's like, it's like being in a relationship, it's like you can't be like half in, either you're all in or you're not in, right? And the same thing goes with, with the startups. This whole thing like, well, you're kind of hedging, you're kind of like doing something on the side, or you're kind of working two jobs and kind of in case, that just doesn't work. You have to be all in so that you're like, put your life on the line, where it's basically like, if this doesn't work, I'm going home in a body bag. That's what I tell people at Jet. I said, you know, like it's billions or body bags. There's no like in between. Billions or body bags. That's the mentality you have to have because that's your we best. You have the Hudson River succeed. right here for Hoboken. That'll be convenient. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I don't want to be. I don't want to go home in a body bag. <laughs> Definitely not. But this that's your mentality. You put yourself in, in this position where, like, where where there's no like safety, like out, right? It's like you go down with the ship, and you got to like be prepared to go all the way. And that's when you're gonna like you're gonna get the best out of yourself, and you're gonna be like super laser focused, not distracted, and that that's your best chance. Worst case, it's a body bag. Fortunately. You know, people come, you know, come out of that, right? So, um, I don't know too many people who come out of those. <laughs> Your analogy may be flawed. <laughs> In fact, I thought Vinny, correct me if I'm wrong here. So we had Vinny uh, Barrara, if I remember his last oh, yeah, Barrara, Barrara speak here uh, maybe two years ago. And I thought that he shared that he didn't quit his, his job being an attorney full-time, or maybe it was part-time, until there was $10 million in revenue. Is that not the case? Um, or until there was substantial revenue that, that could support some kind of a salary. I don't. I don't think so. We're, I. I don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember that. Um, but, so well, that no, doesn't no, matter. You would tell somebody today. No, though. Not, not at all. Wait, with the pit or diapers.com. Oh, diapers.com. Diapers. Okay, because the pit. He just quit like being a lawyer and and made no salary and jumped right into it. At the pit. I mean, sorry, at diapers.com. Um, yeah, I think it, it was. It wasn't ten million, but it was like yeah, probably a few million in revenue. Yeah, I yeah. think it was. Yeah. But you would advise people today: scrap that plan, leave your day job, do what you have to do, friends and family around if you need to, go all in. No, I think I think it's okay. I think it's okay um, to do whatever you can on the side as long as you're not jeopardizing the business you're trying to create. But once you realize that, like. And this is, this is what I think people... So you can, on the side, do your business plan, work on stuff, prove some stuff out. You're not jeopardizing the business you're trying to create by doing your second job. That's, that's just being smart, right? And doing that and working nights and weekends and that kind of thing. But you get to a point where you... you by not being 100% focused on the new business, you jeopardize that business. That's the point where you have to quit and be all in. So I met a... You know, it's not explaining correctly, but but what you see a lot of times is people hang on 
because they're scared. And so it's like you're doing, you're doing damage. Like, you know, you're not answering the phone. You don't have the at scale value prop. You're, you know, not getting back to customers the way you normally would if you were full time. You know, all these things. You're, 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 you're sacrificing the business because you're hedging. That's what I would say. So that, what, what about the, the, sorry? that's where the line would be. What about the flip side of that? When to throw in the towel? <laughs> when to throw in the towel. Or the body bag, I yeah. suppose. I mean, I, I think you, you, once basically, um, you know, the, the unit economics are everything. That is really like, that's sort of the entrepreneur's sort of Bible, right? You, you need to prove to yourself that the unit economics work and that if you prove to yourself the unit economics work, um, and that is you're able to acquire a customer for, for significantly less than the amount of profit you're gonna generate by that customer, even if you haven't like seen it play out, but you feel really confident that that math works, then you have something. If you don't have, if the unit economics doesn't work and you see businesses all the time, you see a lot of businesses that raise hundreds of millions of dollars, fail and stuff, the unit economics did not work. They would acquire a customer for, for $50 and the lifetime value of the customer was, was, was 45 or something. You know, it's just, it, it, or even 60 or 70. Like that, that math doesn't work either. It needs to be, you know, enough to warrant the risk, right? And then, so it's some multiple of, of what your cost of acquisition is. And I think that's got to be the signal. If that math doesn't work, it's just, you just shut it down. That's it. It'll, ne it'll never be viable. How has this affected your family life? Would you, do you, it, it, you know, that, that's another, it can be a big strain on an entrepreneur often. How has, has this yeah. been, uh, I mean, fortunately you guys have a large bank account, but I'm sure there's still a lot of stress that goes along with it. Yeah, no, I, I think now it's less stressful, like, because you said, yeah, there's, there's not the same financial risk. Um, and I'm also able to, to hire an amazing team. Right, so you're not sort of in the diapers.com days. You know, you're doing the, you know, you're going to BJ's, you're buying the stuff, stocking the stuff, selling the stuff, marketing, doing the supply. You know, you're doing everything, and you're working, you know, 150 hours a week. I mean, just crazy, almost 150 hours a week. Believe it or not, I mean, it's like five hours of sleep and then everything else working. Um, that puts an enormous strain, yeah, on, on family life and stuff. I, it's not something I recommend, but I mean, I think there needs to be that period where you do have to like commit to that level and it doesn't have to be like that always, you know, raise money and hire your team. But I think there's that, there's definitely like a, you got to commit to like a couple years of just absolute, you know, hell and you got to get buy-in from, from your family because to do it on your own without buy-in, this just doesn't, just doesn't work. There was an article recently in TechCrunch about the hidden co-founder that exists often as a, as a spouse. Yeah. Have you found that to be the case? Yeah, no, absolutely. There's no, like I said, it's impossible. You need, if you're going to put that amount of time in and that sort of effort, you need uh, a partner in it that's, that can help take care of other things. Do you or would you encourage your, your kids to be entrepreneurs? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, they I already just, have it. They already have. My daughter's 15. She already started Do they have amazing URLs already also? <laughs> She's, yeah, she told me she started a sticker business online, and it's like allstickers.org, and it's like, you know, it's 10 bucks for the domain. She's like telling her friends that she's going to get stickers.com. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. This may be an appropriate time to mention that Igloo.com, the domain broker that helped him get Jet.com, is in the audience. So, I mean, how could you even, you should be ashamed of yourself, allstickers.net. That org. That org. org. It's, 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 it's He's given money to, to celiac disease. <laughs> well, that, um, maybe don't be ashamed of that part, but the <laughs> URL could be better. Yeah, no, I know. 
She, uh, she's got to something to think about. She's got to prove the economics <laughs> first before. <laughs> is this an idea developed at scale? <laughs> so what is some advice? You try, you try to te tell your fifteen-year-old daughter how, like, yeah, what you need to do is you need to go on eBay and buy the stickers for two dollars and you sell them for a dollar fifty. That's not real. But daddy, but I want to make money so I can. <laughs> Daddy's made some money, honey. You'll be okay. So how would you? Is there some advice? that you would give yourself uh, 10 or 15 years ago, maybe when you started the pit, like what, what would you go, like to go back and tell Mark from 10 or 15 years ago? Well, I mean, obviously, definitely, um, if I had to do it all over again, I definitely would have never entered banking. I would have, out of school, went to work for a startup. I think there's nothing, the energy of a startup you know, is unlike anything. I mean, you guys know that working startups, that the energy is, is unmatched and the amount of learning that happens like by trial and error and everybody pulling in the same direction and, and have a, like a, a real passion f for achieving a certain vision and having a, a common shared mission, like you can't beat that. You know, so I definitely, I feel like I missed, you know, a good seven, seven years in the startup world. Is there something that you hope to stay true to, you know, whether Jet succeeds wildly or fails wildly, is there something that, you know, five or ten years, let's say ten years out, that you really hope that that Mark remembers to stay true to? I think it comes down to, at the end of the day, like, people ask me all the time, like, what does success mean for the business? And it's not just, you know, happy shareholders. That's not really what success means. It's not about returns. It's not just about happy customers and happy shareholders. It, it's that third prong of, of happy employees that defines success as an entrepreneur. If you create a great, amazing business and sell it, but your people that work there weren't happy and didn't think it was the most amazing experience of their life, then you did something wrong. And so I make that a really big, important part of how I think about building the business is like employee happiness and, and we have a set of core values around really empowering people and making sure that, that um, they're as important of a constituent as, as the shareholder is or the, cons or the consumer. So I think that would be, you know, not to lose sight of that, the importance of that. It's easy to get distracted with the money and with the shareholders and everything else, but, but you can't do it at the expense of the employees. That, that was intended to be the last question, but what defines success or really happiness for you? For me, yeah, what defines, I mean, actually, um, I, I like making, this is kind of cheesy, but I, I like making other people happy. I like making the customers happy, the employees happy, and the shareholders happy. That brings me happiness, so it's sort of selfish in that way. Um, so yeah, I mean, if, uh, if I'm not doing that, I'm not, I'm not happy, and so. Do you wake up every day right now thinking, Good thoughts. Like you're, you know, you're yeah. you're feeling like you're moving in the right direction. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I'm, I, I, I use that time like right before I go to bed every night to just like like an an hour to just think every night about replaying like the five year vision for those three constituents. Just every night, just replaying and replaying. Am I on the right track? Am I doing the right things? Am everything going good? It's like at a high level. Just every night, that's what I do. That's kind of my routine. And just keep me sort of like thinking at that high level. I think a lot of times it's easy to get distracted with sort of the day-to-day -day and you just get caught in and you get a million things to do and emails and calls and things. And you, you need that perspective. You need to like take a step back, I think. And not just like once a month, but like really like every day. That's what, that's what I, so. So as you could 
probably tell from my, my welcome remarks, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of community and, and people helping one another out. I, could, I know that based on the number of people in the audience or in our group that asked me to ask for an intro to you, that there's a lot of people who want something from you. What can we do to help you and Jet succeed? Yeah, I mean, just I mean, just all you you being here and uh, is is great and and super super supportive. I, I just I think helping the tech community in Hoboken in New Jersey is going to help everyone. I just you know uh, building the um, the community and the profile of startups in, in this area in this part of the country will bring more venture capitalists here. Will bring more um, you know people capital. I mean, it's it. And we all have to work together, I think, you know, to... Is there anything up. specifically, though? Like, are there people you're looking to hire? I mean, what can we do tomorrow to help Jet? Tomorrow. Or to um, help Mark? Yeah, I mean, we're... Or we're, Scott. We're, we're hiring, yeah, we're, we are hiring, we're hiring, you know, probably 20, 25 people a month now in, in corporate here, and it will be in Hoboken in two months. We're looking for great people. The biggest need, obviously, is on the engineering front. Um, we're Microsoft Stack, which is pretty unusual, F-sharp is the primary pro programming language. So if anybody sort of knows any really good F-sharp programmers or passion for Microsoft development, yeah, that, that would be really, really helpful. Windows super popular in the startup community. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're very much looking forward to, to welcoming you to Hoboken. I appreciate you taking the time. I know that you uh, have said no to a lot of these things, and uh, I could probably talk to you all night, but it's, it's getting a bit late. So with that, how about a big round of applause for Mark Laura? We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you subscribe now so you don't miss out on the next one. From the team at the New Jersey Tech Meetup, we hope you have a great day and we'll see you in person at our events soon.